I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 12 this morning, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? And have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But I, if you have known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogues, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? in order that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out, and counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we again just gather in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our heart's desire, Lord, is to hear from you and to worship you. I pray that our proper response to all that you've written and that you desire to say to us today would be to yield to you, Lord, in faith and obedience in praise to the one who is worthy of all praise, that we would just give you, God, that proper place in our lives where you are worthy of all, and that we would yield all that we are to you. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, it seems like a long time since we've been in Matthew. We had a Sunday uh, for testimonies, and uh, Pat and I were able to listen to most of that in the car um, as we went out to Louisiana for um, uh, Phil Doherty's um, funeral, which was a wonderful time to be there with the Doherty family and, and to um, remember Phil. And then last Sunday, Easter Sunday, and I asked Connor to preach for me because I had a lot of hours the week before that I was teaching at his hill, and, um, and so I thought it'd be good to have somebody else that wasn't quite as busy as me prepare for Sunday preaching, and I appreciate Connor filling in for me. So we're in chapter 12, and I've been saying for a while that Matthew chapter 12 is, is the watershed point in the book of Matthew. Um, this is the climax, and it, it's not because this is where Christ dies, but it's the climax because for all these chapters, Jesus has, be, has been presenting himself as king and the one who has authority over all of creation, all of mankind, and so now the people need to make a choice and either respond to that authority or reject it. And as we see in this chapter, this is where the leadership of Israel is, is just categorically rejecting Christ. And they come right out, as we just read in verse 14, they counsel together how to destroy him. And in the next few verses, it says that they're even going to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And at that point, Jesus goes, well, we're, you're right on the threshold of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And once that happens, there's no forgiveness. And so this is the, the critical point of the book. And from this point on, Jesus no longer offers the kingdom to Israel. The last offer of the kingdom comes up here. And, that's, and he's done with it because they're, they're rejecting him. They're rejecting the kingdom offer. He's going to begin to speak in, in parables in chapter 13 as a way to obscure the truth from these that won't hear the truth. And so this is, this is really a, a, a disappointing chapter in a lot of respects, critical chapter, because Jesus has been so openly offering them the kingdom, and they are rejecting Christ and his kingdom. It's a sad, sad chapter. One of the things that's so interesting about this chapter, though, is that it's in this chapter where they are rejecting Jesus that we have a very strong statement of the Father's affirmation of him. So if you'll just look where it says in verse 15, and the following here, and it says, But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, 
and healed them all and warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and then this prophet, this quote from Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, this is God the Father speaking of Christ, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. So while the Pharisees hated him, the religious leadership of Israel was wanting to see him killed, the father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. So we have all three persons of the Trinity there in verse 18. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone um, hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. How could you hate a person like this? Why would you want this person to be put to death? And then recall the last statement in chapter 11, where Jesus is, is just extending this open invitation to all of Israel. And he says to, the, says to them, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. And then chapter 12, they want nothing to do with him. Amazing. You may not realize this. Um, I, I certainly am not good at recalling dates or anything, but I was talking to Don Turner about this a, few, a couple months ago, just trying to remember when this church started and, and just some milestones. And this is actually the 40th anniversary for Bernie Bible Church. This spring, 40 years ago, is when this church started. And I think it was probably 30 years ago that I started preaching here. And so that's been a long time. Some of you are still here. <laughs> a lot of grace and mercy. Um, and, you know, that's, and, and so I, occasionally I've had people that are involved with torchbearers where I am the director of one of the centers and, and do some of the teaching. And I've had people in torchbearers say, Charlie, how have you directed a center and also preached, you know, for all those years at Bernie Bible Church? And I, tongue-in-cheek, my, my kind of standard response is, well, the people in Bernie Bible Church are a people of low expectations. <laughs> and, um, but that, and I'm saying that in jest, but what I, what I will say in all sincerity is there, there have been people, you, could, you can expect it, in any church over 30 years' time, there are going to be people who come and leave disappointed for various reasons. Sometimes they just don't like me. Sometimes they just are not getting their needs met, whatever that would be. Maybe there's not enough youth programs for them. Maybe their marriages are not doing <coughs> well, and, and there's an expectation that somehow the church would be able to fix that. And there's been a number of different reasons why people have sometimes left disappointed. This I know. This church and no church was set up by God to meet everybody's needs. A church is to a point where we come together in fellowship in the name of Jesus Christ around His Word. It's a place where we come to be ministered to, edified, built up, encouraged, rebuked, challenged, whatever God needs to do through His Word. God uses His Word. God uses His people. But the object of the church is to be reminded that we need Jesus. And it's Jesus, as He says here in chapter 11, then if we come to Him, all who are weary and heavy laden, He will give us rest. Not the church, not the pastor, not the elders. Jesus Christ gives rest. If my hope is in anything other than Jesus, if my hope is in Bernie Bible Church or His Hill or any other ministry, I am going to be gravely disappointed because there's only one person who can give me what I need. And that is Jesus Christ. Not my wife, not my children, not my ministry, not my job. Only Christ can give rest to the weary. Now, if you're offering something, peddling something, selling something that is other than Jesus, and then you got Jesus coming along and speaking directly to that and saying, that doesn't work. If you're on the side that's peddling that, you're going to get mad. And I think that's what's happening here. The Pharisees have had enough of hearing Jesus say what the Pharisees is offering will not give you rest. So they feel personally attacked. 
they're, they're, what they're invested in is being threatened. We see it all around us, whether it's churches or politics, that we see when, when the curtain is pulled back and there is nothing there, it's just a light show with no substance behind it, and people are disappointed. And so those that are putting on the light show can work even harder to try and make everybody think, this is where you need to be. This is what you need. You need to be voting Democrats. You need to be voting Republican. We're the answer for you. No, they're not. And we will ultimately be disappointed if we're trying to find rest for our weary souls anywhere other than in Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes along, one in whom the Father is well pleased, but the Pharisees can't think of a thing about him that they like. And it's because this message that the answer is not in what the Pharisees are peddling was a message that they did not want to hear because it put them out of business. The Pharisees were essentially saying, keep the law, and that's all you need to do. Keep the law, and you will achieve righteousness and holiness as God wants you to be righteous and holy. Amen. God wants you righteous and holy. And Jesus is coming along and saying, but the law has one intrinsic weakness. It can point you to righteousness. It can point you to holiness, but it cannot make you righteous or holy. The only way that's going to happen is to come to the one who is righteous and holy, and that is Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees were not directing people to Jesus. They were directing people to them, their teaching, and their system. And so they felt very threatened when someone comes along and says, look at me. And they wanted everybody to look at them. So in this chapter, my, my ambition here, I hope I'm not being too ambitious, is to work through this whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but I, so I just kind of want to hit some of the um, points here without being superficial is my goal. Three things are going on <coughs> in this chapter. One is they're accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Those are the verses that I just read. And then they're saying that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. That's the next section. And then they're going to, in the last part, they come and they want a sign performed. And they're demanding a sign be performed. From that, there are turning points that are taking place. The Pharisees determine in this chapter to kill Jesus. They, as I said, they attribute the power of Jesus to Satan. And in their demand for a sign, they are demonstrating their own evil and adulterous hearts. There are several key statements that Jesus makes in this chapter. As we get into the first paragraph here, <coughs> Jesus, I'm just going to pick it up at the beginning. Jesus is walking through the grain fields with his disciples. His disciples became hungry. They began pick, picking some of the grain they rub it in their hands, they, they break the husk, and, and they blow on it so there's just the seed left, and then they eat it. And the Pharisees see all this happening, which was legal to do, um, but they say this is against the Sabbath, it's breaking the Sabbath, because you are, are, are reaping, and you're threshing, and you're winnowing, and so all of that is work, and you can't work on the Sabbath, which is a, we need to understand, this is, this is no minor point. If, if in fact they are correct, that Jesus' disciples are breaking the Sabbath, that is a capital offense. In the Old Testament, the first time that somebody broke the Sabbath, they went to God and said, what should we do? There was a man who was gathering wood on the Sabbath, and God answered and said, kill him. And so they stoned the man to death for working on the Sabbath. So this is a capital offense. And so no small charge here. Your disciples are working on the Sabbath. And then Jesus has a peculiar way of answering them. It's, it's kind of convoluted, it seems to me, in a bit, a, a bit, and it's hard to work through it. But the basic gist here is Jesus is saying, I know better than you do when it comes to the Sabbath. You guys are wrong on lots of stuff, and this is another point where you're wrong. So when the Pharisees saw it, it says, Your disciples are not doing what's lawful, verse 3. But he said to them, you ha Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? They entered the house of God. They ate the consecrated, consecrated bread. It was not lawful for them to do that. And, and yet the Scripture never condemned David. That's how, if you pick up the commentaries and look at this, they go, Scriptures didn't condemn David. Scriptures didn't condemn David. That's a weak argument to me personally. 
Because the scriptures don't condemn Rahab for lying either. And, and so just because when you look at the hist historical narrative, there are many things that happen that are neither condemned nor approved. And so it doesn't, you can't just say, well, because it's not condemned, God was in favor of what happened. So it's a bit of a weak argument. But I think what Jesus is getting at is, I'm greater than David. See, Jesus is the son of David. This would not have been lost on them. They've been hearing Jesus say over and over again, I am the son of David. I am the son of David. And the Messiah had to be the son of David. And they're going, nobody can, you guys, if you'd been living back at the time, you wouldn't have condemned David. Right or wrong, you wouldn't have condemned him. I'm the son of David. Why are you condemning my disciples? I think kind of that more gets to the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's showing their hypocrisy with this. And then he says, have you not read in the law that, the Sabbath, uh, that, the, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent, which is true enough, because the law demanded that they work on the Sabbath. So not everybody couldn't work on the Sabbath. Most people couldn't, but the, the, the priests had to work on the Sabbath, and they were innocent. And so Jesus is going, you're taking things too far again here. Jesus is not only the son of David, a king, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of the, of the, of the requirement of being a priest. And he says, these priests work, and they are not guilty. And Jesus is going, he could have followed through and says, I'm a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And he says, and if I'm working, why am I violating the, the, the Sabbath when other priests work, and they're not violating the Sabbath? And then he says, is there something greater than the temple here? And three times in this chapter, he's going to say, there's something greater here. There's something greater here. Something greater than the temple. Something greater than John, Jonah. Something greater than Solomon. Jesus is greater. And all three of these refer to the three principal roles of Jesus, of, of prophet, priest, and king. And he says, I'm greater than any prophet you saw in the Old Testament. I'm greater than any priest you saw in the Old Testament. I'm greater than any king you saw in the Old Testament. But they're not seeing it. What I'm after, Jesus says, what I'm after is compassion. That's what God has always been after. The Old Testament wasn't set up in order to, to make life miserable for people. The law could not give us life, but it was to point us to the one who could give us life. God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then Jesus says in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, one of the reasons this passage is so important to get right is because we cannot use this as an example. As I've heard a couple different times, people say, God can tell you to do something contrary to what Scripture says. And they'll go to this passage and say, I know the Bible says thou shalt not, and you can fill in the blank. But God told me that I can God who gave the law can bend the law, change the law when he feels like it. Jesus did that as we see in this passage. Makes my head want to explode. Okay, I'm just going, no, no, no way. Okay, Jesus said in John chapter 5, do not think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. We are told that Jesus in no way violated the law that he was without sin. There was no transgression in him. He took our transgressions upon himself, but he was without transgression. He was without sin. At his condemnation, when the Pharisees sought a way to, to bring about his execution, and they, were, they could find nothing, nothing to accuse him on, and that included breaking the Sabbath. If, if, the Sabbath, if Jesus had truly violated the Sabbath, broken the Sabbath, they would have brought it up when they were trying to execute him. Not a mention about the Sabbath. But the big point here is Jesus does not alter his word to fit our circumstances. Never, never, never. He came to fulfill his word, and now we're under a new law. We're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ. And that does not change, bend, alter for anyone. Never will. We need to be clear on this. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, but that doesn't mean he just picks and chooses what he's going to apply to us. It all applies to us, and we have to come to him for the fulfillment of it. Now, moving on quickly here, um, the Pharisees 
see very much that Jesus is about the human being and about his, his, his need, and they hate it because Jesus, again, is offering life and rest, and what they are offering is a, is a system that just puts them in subjection to the Pharisees and their authority. And they hated him, and they counseled together how they might destroy him. Amazing. You know, as a, as a husband and a father, nothing pleases me more than to hear the ones that I love the most being esteemed and appreciated by others. Boy, you want to get on my side? Tell me good things about my wife and kids. You want to get on my bad side? Mistreat my wife and kids. Is it any different with God? I mean, this, I mean, God has one concern. What do we do with His Son? What do we do with His Son? That's the only thing He's going to ask us when we stand before Him in heaven. What did you do with Jesus? What was your regard of my Son? That's it. And these Pharisees hate Him. But this passage from Isaiah says, My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. And they wanted him dead. Makes me, it gives me goosebumps thinking of what those men had to face when they died and stood before the Father. They hated the one whom he loved. We come to verse 22, and it's where he heals a, a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and the reason they were amazed, <coughs> we understand, is because they believed, the Pharisees had taught, that exorcisms of demons could only take place as you first learned the name of the demon. So the demon had to speak to you its name, and then you would use the name of the demon to cast out the demon. So if the person with the demon couldn't speak, then the person had no hope of being delivered. But Jesus is showing again His sovereign, absolute power, doesn't have to know the demon's name, doesn't have, the man doesn't have to be able to speak. Jesus can speak a word, and the man is healed. This man cannot be the son of David. Again, they understood that Jesus was presenting himself as the king. And then the Pharisees said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Oh, my. And knowing their thoughts, you just think, what, what this is doing to the heart of God. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, this is stupid, paraphrasing, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then shall his kingdom stand? Illogical, nuts, stupid. Who wants to be called that? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. This is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're telling me Satan is casting out demons by his own power. Right. If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, it's an issue not of being illogical, but in inconsistent. Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off the property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder the house. And Jesus is saying, I, I'm stronger than the demons. And that's why this is happening. And then he continues with this thought. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. It's one or the other. This is a statement again where he is making a claim to deity. You're either for me or against me, and everything depends upon that. There's no ambiguity. There's no neutrality. You're either for Jesus or against him. In my daydreams, I often think of really tough conversations I would have with people that are resisting Christ, and I don't do it. But I appreciate it times when I've heard it happen and when God has used it. I know there was one um, lady here in the church, her husband, um, her father was on his deathbed. 
and the son-in-law sat with his wife's father at his deathbed in a hospital, gently but very firmly said to him, you have lived your entire life as a proud, stubborn man, and you are about to enter into eternity. You need to get right with God. It is time for you to place your faith in Jesus. Wow. And the man did. Praise God. I know when my grandfather, my mom's dad, was diagnosed with cancer, not given long to live, he was a good man. He was a faithful man. He raised 12 kids and faithful to his wife and worked hard. Um, but he was not known by any of the grandchildren as being a warm, kind man. My grandfather, that grandfather, he had barbed wire wrapped around his trees out in the yard so that the kids wouldn't climb the trees on the way home from school. Who does that? He kept a loaded BB gun at the back door, not to shoot stray cats and dogs, but to shoot the kids that still tried to climb his trees. And when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, his doctor, a Christian man, gently but firmly said to him, Tom, you don't have much time to live, and there is no cure. You need to be ready to meet your maker. And the doctor led him to Christ. Good stuff. Jesus is speaking plainly here. You're either for him or you're against him. I'd hope that anybody that's here today you're on the right side of that equation. But I know we, many of us have family members that are not on the right side of that equation. I think sometimes, it may not be the family member, but at times, we, those people all need to have it laid out plainly to them. There is no neutrality. You can't be ambivalent about Jesus. You are either for him or you are against him. Which one is it? Which one is it? Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. It's done. Again, difficult passage, very strong, uncompromising. There's no, no wavering here. There is a sin which will not be forgiven. All sins are not the same. There are greater and lesser sins. And this is the greatest sin of all, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. Paul called himself a blasphemer. Did you know that? When Paul listed his sins, he says, and I was a blasphemer. Many folks would say, and I see their point, don't take issue with it, that this was a sin that can only be permitted at this particular time when Jesus was on earth. It was a national sin, a sin that all of Israel was right on the threshold of committing. And this is why Jesus is warning them and he begins to pull back in what he's teaching them so that they won't transgress and be guilty of this. People ask, is it still a sin that can be committed today? This I know. As he says here, there is no sin which cannot be forgiven. But if a person does not receive Christ as his Savior and as eternal life, that sin cannot be forgiven. At any point in life, even on our deathbed, we can turn to him and say, Jesus, save me. But should we die having not asked Christ to save us, there is no forgiveness for our not having placed our faith in Christ. It is done. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, and that is the basis of judgment. What did we do with Jesus? 
Why does Jesus say, you can, sin, you can blaspheme against me, but you can't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and get away with it? We all have heard people take the name of Jesus in vain, the name of God in vain. That can be forgiven. Those people can still be saved and go to heaven. No question about it. But the Holy Spirit, what is unique about blaspheming Him? I think it's this. The Holy Spirit is the witness of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that I will send the Holy Spirit to you and He will make you my witnesses. He will come upon you and you shall become my witnesses. He says in John 14 and John 16 that when I send Him, that He will bear witness of me. There is no greater witness of Jesus Christ than the Holy Spirit. All of these miracles, all the exorcisms that were being performed were being performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of these miracles are the Holy Spirit saying, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is your rest. Come to Jesus. All those miracles were the Holy Spirit advertising Jesus. And to turn around and say those miracles, those exorcisms were being performed by Satan is to blaspheme what the Spirit is saying about Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you think that can be forgiven? It's not the point of the Holy Spirit per se, it's the point of the witness the Holy Spirit is giving about Jesus. You can't reject the witness that the Spirit gives to all people concerning Jesus and expect to be saved. Deny the witness and you're going to be lost. And the Spirit has said in ways too many to number, Jesus is life. Jesus is the Son of God. And you have no life apart from Him. We could not count the number of ways the Spirit of God has borne witness of Jesus in our own lifetimes. Through His Word, through people that know Him, that bear witness of Him, it is hard to imagine that there'll be any person who stands before God with an excuse for rejecting Jesus, for not placing their faith in Him. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if it can be done today, would simply be to deny what the Spirit says concerning Jesus. You cannot deny the Spirit's witness of Christ and be saved. It's not complicated. If you wonder if you have done this, my inclination is to say your fear that you might have Blasting the Holy Spirit is itself indication that you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because you won't care. Just as these Pharisees don't care one whit about anything Jesus is saying. None of these warnings make a dent in them. The person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit won't care if he is blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So if you think that you might have, that in itself tells me that you haven't. But again, if you think you might have, as long as you're still breathing, there is hope. You can turn to Jesus. And there is nothing that you've done that His blood has not paid for. And you can be absolutely forgiven. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. What's all that about? These men are acting like they're good men. Jesus knows their hearts. And even men who put on a good show, ever so often, their words will reveal what their heart really is. We can't look into the heart. We can't even know our own hearts. But God's word is clear that the mouth speaks from the heart. And I can't look at a person's heart, but I can listen to the words that come out of their mouth. You ever been in a situation where somebody has said something to you just, whoa, where did that come from? 
over the top. And then afterwards, they come back and say, I'm so sorry. I have no idea where that came from. That is not what I think. Well, I do know where that came from. It came from your heart. Because the words reveal the heart. And we all have evil hearts, apart from the grace of God. Jesus is specifically talking about what we say about Jesus. So when he says that men shall give an account for every careless word that they speak, the context here is what we say about Jesus. What do we say about Jesus? Do we, by the way that we live our lives, by the way that we, where, where, we, where we look for hope and look for rest and look for life, is Jesus exalted? Do we speak of him? When you're dealing with a broken heart of a friend, family member, loved one, maybe just an acquaintance, and they're groping, and their heart's broken, and they're looking for answers, and you're faced with a situation that is just impossible, you don't even have the words for it, how can I help this person? What comes out of your mouth at that time? Is it Jesus? See, these are the times when we're exposed. What do we really believe? And when people's lives is falling apart, man, the wheels are coming off. And they're going, help me, help me, help me. And you know if you're honest, like these Pharisees, that they've been honest, there is nothing in me I can do to put the wheels back on. I can't put your life together. If we're honest, will we, what do we speak of at that time? Oh, I know a church you ought to go to. I know a sermon you ought to listen to. What's so bad with that? It's one step short of just saying, I know someone. I know someone. And that someone is Jesus. All I can do is direct you to him, pray with you. But I am not a shortcut, and I certainly hope I am not a stopgap to keep you from going to Him. Why is something so simple so hard? I don't know. But for, mo for many of us, the one thing that is most readily available to us is the hardest thing to do, just to get alone and cry out to Jesus, 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 help me. He is the one who gives rest to the weary soul. Every careless word. Here's a book. Nothing wrong with the book. But the whole, I would hope the point of the book, the point of the sermon, the point of the church, these are simply vehicles, tools, channels to bring us to Jesus. And what should come out of our mouth is, not here's a book, here's a sermon, here's a church, but God used this in my life to bring me to Jesus. I don't know if this is what God wants to use in your life, but I know he, he wants you to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. It's not done with these Pharisees, and they're not done with him. Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Goodness gracious. I, I, you know, man, all that Jesus has been saying here, and, that he's, and, the, and the next thing is, do, so, do of something, perform for us. My word. And Jesus answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves after a sign. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. He's done with the miracles. He's going to perform more miracles, but it's no longer about witnessing to who he is because they won't believe the witness. And he goes, the only witness that's left for you guys to believe is the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of the resurrection. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days buried in the tomb. 
and yet he will rise again. So that's the sign, and guess what? And that is the sign. That is the sign. All the other signs were minor league compared to the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 says that God has declared his son with power to be the son of God through the resurrection. This is God's most powerful witness. It is his exclamation point on who Jesus is, the resurrection. And if we won't believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what will we believe? The answer is nothing. But Jesus gets right to the issue. It's an evil heart that craves after signs. When God has already raised his son from the dead who died for us, and that's not enough, it is an evil heart that would want more. Someone pointed out once, I, might, I was probably back in my seminary days, I think it was then that one of the professors pointed out that if you look at where the miracles happen in the Bible, where they're clustered together, and I've, I've made this observation in other sermons, you see that they don't start, you don't see miracles just bursting on the scene and being clustered together until Israel is captive as a nation in Egypt and God is trying to set his people free. All of a sudden, miracles one after the other. The ten plagues, all the miracles of the 40 years of wandering. And then there's miracles during the days of Joshua, where in those miracles, God was using miracles to overthrow the Canaanite people. But in both cases, generation of Moses, evil and adulterous generation. All of them died in the wilderness, those who were 20 years old and older. Evil and adulterous generation. The Canaanites that God was performing the miracles against they were a very, very wicked, wicked people. And then you don't see the miracles clustered again until you come to Elijah and Elisha, evil and adulterous generation, where the national religion of Israel had become the worship of Baal. They had totally rejected God, and now God starts throwing all these miracles at them. And then you don't see the miracles again until the days of Jesus. And Jesus says, this generation I'm living in is the worst generation that mankind has ever seen. Do you realize that? Worst generation that God at this world had ever seen was the generation of Jesus' day. Israel, not talking about the Romans, because they had greater light, greater witness than any, and they weren't receiving that light. They were an evil and adulterous generation. And then the next time we're going to see a bunch of miracles clustered together will be in the last days of the tribulation when the two witnesses will appear and they're performing many miracles that all the world witnesses, and again, we're speaking of an evil and adulterous generation. I hope the application is not lost on us. If we are a people, I've said it before, I'll say it again, if we are a people who can only be sustained in our faith by miracles, and we are constantly craving the miraculous, we are an evil and adulterous generation. If Jesus, risen from the dead, who lives to save us, is not enough, it is an evil and adulterous generation. We used to tease my mother. She would put on these massive spreads um, every Sunday, and the house would be full of people, and Sometimes my brothers and I, we'd look at this tremendous spread, and she's been working for days many times to get it all done, and, and she'd have an apple pie and a cherry pie, and, and, all, you know, and we'd look at all these pies, and we'd go, Mom, where's the lemon meringue? <laughs> she, oh, man, she'd want, to pull, she'd want to pull her hair out. But we were teasing her. You think, but if we were serious, what ungrateful kids that she would slave like that, set the table for us, get everything we, she could possibly think of to provide, and we're looking around and going, but what about? Isn't that how so many people live their lives? God has set the table for them. He has been nothing but good. He has presented more evidence concerning Christ, done more good than any person would ever deserve, and yet we're going, but, but, but. What about, what about? God says evil, evil when we will not be satisfied with what God has given. He speaks of Jonah and the people of Nineveh, how they repented. 
He speaks of the Queen of Sheba, how she came from a distant country to search out something, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He says something greater than Jonah is here, something greater than Solomon is here. So that's the third something greater, greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than, he's talking about the priesthood, the, 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 the prophets, the kings, Christ is greater than them all. And he says, if you don't respond to what God is offering, speaking of Israel, this is one of his greatest warnings yet. He says, verse 43, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. What's Jesus been doing? Casting out spirits everywhere. And does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds an unoccupied swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live in there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it would also be with this evil generation. Jesus' point is not what happens when one man gets a demon cast out. His point is what's happening to Israel. Jesus has come in and he's been putting Israel in order. And yet the leadership is rejecting him. And he's saying, it's going to be seven times worse for you because you are, are, have not received him. The house has been swept clean, but it needs to be occupied with Jesus, and they want nothing to do with him. So their last state will be worse than the first. And then finally, interesting conclusion to this chapter. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And he answered the one who was telling him this and said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is not rejecting his family. He's not saying he doesn't love them. But this is telling us that there's no way that Mary should be adored as she is by the Catholics or anybody else. Jesus is saying, I love my mom. And one of the last things he did from the cross was to make sure she was taken care of. But he's saying, there's a bigger deal here than my mom and my brothers. And that is those people who do the will of my Father. They're my true family. What does it mean to do the will of the Father? Are you saved by works? He's not saying that. One of my favorite commands starts with the most basic command, 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. What is the will of the Father? Believe in the Son. What's the one question we're going to be asked in heaven? What did you do with my Son? What is the one thing the Father wants us to do? Believe in the Son. It's not complicated. And Jesus says, those who do the will of my Father, which is to believe in the Son, those are my brothers, my mother, my sister. To review some of the key statements here, there's something greater here, greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, and that is Jesus. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. The Son of, the, Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The one who is not with me is against me. Blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. The mouth speaks from the heart. Words will justify or condemn you. It is an evil and adulterous generation that craves for a sign. And Jesus' family are those who will do the will of the Father, which is to believe in Him. Jesus is greater than the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and the Word. Therefore, He is the one who interprets them. Jesus is good, and He does good. And that's why He was hated and killed. I remember hearing Steve Troxell at Wayside Chapel many years ago preach a sermon on this and just saying, make the, make, he said, make no, mis, make no mistake here. The reason that Jesus was killed was because he was good. God was pleased with him. We're either for him or we're against him. Our words about him reveal what we really believe and will determine our destiny. 
The only sign that ultimately matters is the sign of Christ's resurrection. It's evil people that crave signs and aren't satisfied by them. And family relationship with Jesus is based on obedience to the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father. And the Father's command is that we believe in Jesus. Come to me, all, we, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's on the one side. On the other side, he cast out demons by the power of Satan. There is a grand canyon between those two things. And I think that God's telling us in this chapter, we're all on one side or the other of that grand canyon. As ugly as it sounds to think that we would be people that would say he cast out demons by the power of Satan. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not coming to him for your rest, you are treating him as though he is one who is empowered by Satan, by your refusal to come to him. Your words and your actions reveal your heart. May we be a people who come to Jesus. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for your word, for laying things out for us, God, so plainly that we might choose Jesus to receive him, to receive the gift of eternal life. Thank you, God, that the only thing that really you command of us is to believe in Jesus. And it is from this, God, that you do your saving work within each of us, saving us, sanctifying us, glorifying us, all in response to simply believing in Jesus. May he truly be exalted, God, in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would make us bold and yet filled with grace and wisdom in sharing these simple black and white truths, God, with all who have yet to believe. In Christ's name, amen.